The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible this morning, I hope you do open with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians chapter 3, being verses 14 through 21 uh, this morning. I titled this morning's message, A Model for Prayer. A Model for Prayer. When my future wife and I started dating, smartphones didn't exist, and normal cell phones weren't pocket-sized. Those portable cell phones required you to carry along a bag the size of a small purse for the battery, and so we didn't have one of those either when we were dating. Um, Text messaging, although formally in existence at that time, wouldn't become popular for several years to come, and we didn't do that. And email, I I learned I didn't realize how early email was invented, like in the late 70s. And so email had been around for for a decade and a half before we began dating, but I I had no clue what email was. We didn't have our first email address until we were married. Um, Now, all of that is to say that the ways that we take for granted that we communicate today, most of those, or many of those ways, didn't even exist when we were dating. So, So how did we communicate? Well, we met at school, not not as students at the same school, but we were teachers at the same school. And so we communicated in the way that many teachers get irritated when their students are communicating. We we would pass notes to one another is what we would do. I, I would write a note to my wife or my future wife, and I would uh, staple it shut and give it to one of my best students and say, you know, run this to to Miss Marshall in the in the chorus room. Um, and then Mary would return a note, and she would staple it shut with a student and run this to Mr. Sandifer on the eighth grade hall. We would do that three or four times a day, just about every day um, in school during that year that we were uh, dating before we got married. Our notes to one another were, were ways that we communicated to each other how much we cared for one another. Now, you might wonder, why, why are you talking about how you used to talk to your, uh, to your wife or your fiancé at the time? What, what significance does my courtship with Mary have to do with our text, Right? Well, in order to build a relationship, communication must take place. It's true of any relationship. It's true of two people who are dating, wanting to get married. It's two people, frankly, if you are already married, it's true. It's true for a family. It's true for a church. It's true even for your workplace. That if you want your relationships to flourish, you have to communicate. And beloved, this is also true in our relationship with God. If we want our relationship with God to flourish... We need to communicate with Him. And communication with God happens primarily in in three different ways. Okay, First and and most importantly, communication with God happens directly as we read His Word, as as we read the Bible. The Bible is God's love letter to us. We have 66, if you will, love letters from God to us in this book. And so that's one of the ways that we could communicate, that we can communicate with God. You know, imagine how Mary would have felt at the end of the day if she comes to me and says, well, did, you, did you like my notes? And I told her, 
Yeah, I, I, I was waiting until Sunday to read all the notes, um, and I, I hadn't read any of them yet. She would probably be a, a bit peeved, and rightly so, and she'd probably stop sending me notes. So we, we need to read the Word of God, and we need to do so more so than just on Sunday. But that's the first kind of direct way that we communicate with God. A second indirect way that we communicate with God is as we interact with His creation. So, for example, as we enjoy the beautiful hues of a morning sunrise or a sunset, whichever yours suits your fancy, or as we dip our toes in the, uh, what, what appears to be the endless ocean in front of us, or even as we speak with our brothers and sisters in Christ in our home church. These are all ways that we indirectly communicate with God and God to us. And then third, a third way that we communicate, and this is a direct way we communicate with God, is when we pray to, to God. Sometimes we make prayer out to be more than it is. We make prayer to sound like it's something that mere mortals can't do, and we think of ourselves, well, I can't pray. Yeah, I can't pray like this guy over here. And so we don't pray at all. But that's missing the point, beloved. To put it in its simplest terms, prayer is us simply writing a love note to God. It's expressing our hearts to God. That's what prayer is. And today, through our text, we're going to take a closer look at what prayer is. And so, if you're in Ephesians 3, say Amen. Amen. We're going to read verses 14 through 21. This is a prayer, if you will. In my Bible, it's called a prayer for spiritual strength. Follow along with me as I read these verses. Paul writes, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. Uh, your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, now that you would use your word, use this time together that we have, that your spirit would accompany your word proclaimed, that lives would be changed. Perhaps imperceptibly, we would be changed to be more like your son from one degree of glory to another. For others here, perhaps it may be a time where you're at work in their life and you are calling them unto yourself. And today they will walk out of darkness and walk into light through your son Jesus. But Father, use this time to your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So my central idea for today's message is God's Word teaches us how to pray. All right. God's Word teaches us how to pray. And in, in our text today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw out three points from our text today. Um, first point is this, is prayer to the vertical. 
prayer to the vertical. Paul begins this section of Scripture with these words. He says, for this reason. Naturally, when we read those words, we might want to know what, what is that reason, right? That's, if he says, for this reason, he's, he's obviously pointing back to something that he's written before. And scholars debate about the exact reason. But at the very least, we're not in the midst of a study through Ephesians. Now, we've done that a number of years ago here, but we're not there right now. But at the very least, we can all agree in the context of Ephesians that Paul is referring to the work of the gospel, the good news in the lives of the people at Ephesus. That, that is, that's part of this reason that he's bowing his knee. You see, Paul had been suffering in order to bring the gospel to those good people. The letter to the church in Ephesus is one of Paul's prison epistles. That simply means it's a letter he wrote while he was imprisoned. It's one of four of his uh, prison epistles. He cares deeply for the saints in Ephesus. And our text shows the power and the prayer of a spiritual father who is concerned for his spiritual children. So we should remember well that on his missionary journeys, Paul had already spent, he spent three years. So long as he spent at any church, he spent three years with the saints in Ephesus ministering to those people, sharing Christ with them, and seeing many people come to Christ. And so now he's praying for them. He's praying for their growth in the Gospel. He's praying for their spiritual maturity. But before we even get to that point, I want you to notice who he's praying to. This is the point of he's praying to the vertical. He tells us in the very first verse that he bows his knee before the Father. Let's notice that language. Let's think about that language, if you will, of bowing his knees before the Father. It was very common in Jewish culture to pray standing up. That's what the rabbis would have done. They would have prayed standing up. But Paul bows in prayer. Why does he do that? Why does he bow in prayer? Well, he bows because it's a position of worship. It signifies reverence and submission. It shows humility and he bows, notice this and don't overlook this, he bows before the Father. Those words, before the Father, they have these overtones of dignity and authority. The Father seeks the good of His family, but the Father also lovingly leads His family. And then notice this in verse 15, Paul writes, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Every family. We all, every human being on this planet owes, we all owe our existence to the same Father. Even if we deny Him as Father, it doesn't change the fact that He is Father. Beloved, our prayers need to be directed vertically to our Heavenly Father. That's point number one. It's the shortest of my three points. Point number two is we see a prayer for the horizontal. Prayer for the horizontal. Now Paul, already in reverence and submission, bowing before the Creator of all people, Paul makes three requests for his people, for those people. He prays first for their strength. He prays secondly for their love. And then he prays for their maturity. Their strength, their love, and their maturity. Let's take a look at those in turn. First, a prayer for their strength. We see this, look with me there in verses 16 and 17. He's praying for their strength. And even before he gets to the strength part, though, I want you to notice in the opening words of 16, he says that according to the riches of his glory, 
That is, according to the riches of His glory, God might grant His people strength. God is going to grant strength. He's going to grant not only His people, he's going to, that means us. He's going to grant us strength according to the riches of His glory. But how much glory does God have? How, how If He's going to grant us strength according to His riches in glory, might, we might want to know how rich in glory is God. Well, answer, He's infinitely rich in glory. He will never run out of glory. We might think of men like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos who can afford to build their own spaceships and you know that hurtle themselves out into space. And I'm quite sure that takes a lot of money to do that. You know, a lot of money to build a rocket that's capable of taking a human being into space. But even those men, as ridiculously wealthy as they are, even those men, they don't have infinite wealth. Even for them, they're, they're some, at some point they go, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't do that. I can't buy that. But for God, when He is financing our strength out of His riches and glory, there is no price that's too much. His glory is infinite. And so when Paul prays that we will be strengthened according to the riches of His glory, it means nothing is impossible. Nothing is off the table. He can give us everything that we need to be strengthened in Christ. But what kind of strength is he talking about? He's not talking about physical strength, right? He's not saying, you know, we pray, God help me do 15 more pull-ups tomorrow. That's not, that's not the kind of strength that God is asking. He, it's rather a convictional strength. Al Mohler wrote a book a number of years ago called The Conviction to Lead. And in that book, he writes about convictions. He writes this, and I quote, quote, Convictions are not merely beliefs we hold. They are those beliefs that hold us in their grip. So a conviction is a belief that holds us. And our convictions, the things that we are convicted about, they are a measure of our strength. So beloved, let me just ask that question. What are some of the things that we believe? What are some of the things that, on which we say, I will not compromise, so help me God, on this. I am convinced that this is true. Those are our convictions. And those convictions show our strength. And it's a sign of strength to have biblically-based convictions. And I do want to emphasize the the necessity and the importance of our convictions being biblically-based. So, beloved, when we pray, when we pray for ourselves or when we pray for our children, when we pray for uh, our fellow church members, are we praying that they might have strong, biblically-based convictions? Do we pray, for example, that they will hold tightly to the Word of God? Because our culture, the message we get from our culture is that if you believe what the Bible says, that you're going to end up on the wrong side of history. And so do we pray then to have strong biblical convictions based, again, on a proper understanding of what the Word of God teaches? Do we have those strong biblical convictions? That's the first thing Paul's praying for, that we'd have strength in that. Second, Paul prays, for our love. For our love. We see that in verses 17 through 19. He uses two metaphors there in those verses. One is an agricultural metaphor. He uses the term that we're rooted. And the other is an architectural metaphor that we're grounded, that we have a strong foundation in love. Love is absolutely critical for Christian growth. One commentator put it this way about love. He said, love is intrinsic to all of the fruit of the Spirit. 
Love is joy singing. Peace is love resting. Patience is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. Self-control is love holding the reins. There is no fruit of the Spirit without love. And Paul here is praying that we would have a lifestyle rooted and grounded in that love. And then he uses four descriptive words, measuring words, if you will, to describe that love in verses 18 and 19. That we may have the strength to comprehend. Oh, I'm sorry, you know, I'm in the right place. <laughs> that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding. Paul's praying that we would understand the love of God in its fullness. That we would understand the breadth of His love. A love, beloved, that's wide enough to encompass the entire world. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. That we would have, that we would understand the length of His love. A love that's long enough to last forever. That we don't ever have to worry or fear that God is going to somehow say, grow tired of us and say, I've had enough of you. God's love lasts forever. That we would understand the height of His love. A love that's high enough to take even the lowliest of sinners into heaven. And the depth of His love. A love that's deep enough to reach the deepest depths of our depravity in this world. A.W. Tozer says it this way, Because God is self-existent, His love had no beginning. Because He's eternal, His love can have no end. Because He is infinite, it has no limit. Because He is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because He is immense, His love is incomprehensible, vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. Beloved, do we have the love of Christ? Are we praying that we might have the love of Christ? Are we praying not only that we might have it, are we praying for others to have that type of love? Third, Paul prays for our maturity in Christ. Look there at the end of verse 19. He says, that you may be filled with the greatness, or excuse me, with the fullness of God. That we be filled with the fullness of God. That's a, that's a strange concept, right? To be filled with the fullness of God. A couple comments about that. First, I want us to understand the, the verb there is passive. And, and that means that we're not the one, we're not filling ourselves. Rather, God is the one who is filling us. So we don't fill ourselves. God fills us. Second, I want you to notice from, I'm going I'm to read a couple of the scriptures from Colossians, which is another one of Paul's four prison epistles, that help us understand what this, this idea of the fullness of God is all about. In Colossians 1.19, Paul writes, For in Him, he's talking about Jesus, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in Jesus, all the fullness of God is right there in Jesus. And just a few verses later, in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, For in Him, again about Jesus, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him. And so we have this picture of fullness, what it, what it means to have the fullness of God. And so I want you to imagine with me, for example, standing on an ocean shore. Let's say we're standing on the Pacific Ocean. We have our toes dipping in the Pacific Ocean. 
And we stand there in front of the Pacific Ocean as this tiny little dot in, what, in a seemingly infinite ocean before us. Now imagine you have in your hand, we have in our hands, or all of us are there, we have in our hands, each of us, a little one-pint one pint mason jar, just a little tiny one-pint mason jar. Now if we were to dip that mason jar into the Pacific Ocean, it wouldn't take long. It would just, almost immediately, it would be filled with the fullness of the Pacific Ocean, right? But the jar itself, because it's so small, the jar itself could never contain the fullness of the ocean. But it would be filled with the ocean. Here's, here's, here's the point of that analogy. Christ Himself is infinite. And because He is infinite, He can hold within Himself the full deity within Himself. And whenever we, as finite creatures, whenever we dip the tiny vessel of our life into Christ, we instantly become full of His fullness. And the more of His fullness we receive, the more we can yet receive. And so, we being finite, we can't, we can't hold all of God in us. But God can pour Himself into us and fill us with Himself. And this is a process. This is a process by which we become more and more mature in Christ. And so Paul here, he's praying. He's praying for believers. He's praying for their strength. He's praying for their love. And he's praying for them to be spiritually mature. Point number three. Confidence in the vertical. Confidence in the vertical. Um, did you know that everybody is a theologian? We all are theologians. You might think, ah, I'm not a theologian. You might, you might think, well, the, those are the people who teach at seminaries. Those, or those are people who write those big, thick theology books. Those are people who... Maybe pastors, you might think, you're a, you're a pastor, Brian, so you're, you're a theologian. But I'm going to say to you, we're all theologians. All of us are. And the reason is, is we have thoughts about God, right? All of us, we have thoughts about God. And that, that at, at the heart of the matter, that's what it is to be a theologian, is to think about God. And the question is, you know, are, you, are we a good theologian or a bad theologian? But we're all theologians. In verses 20 and 21, Paul is helping us to think about this God who we're praying to. And Paul puts the power of God on display and he tells us three things about this God. Three things. He says that this God is able to work. He tells us this God is already at work. And he tells us that this God is going to receive all that glory, all of His glory. He's able, He's at work, and He will receive glory. So let's start with that simple yet profound truth that God is able. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. Paul tells us that he can do infinitely more than we can even begin to imagine. Paul here, he's writing about a God who is omnipotent. That is, he's all-powerful. The angels told Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, nothing is too hard for the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah spoke and said, O oh Lord God, it is You who has made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and by Your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for You. Our God is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or even think. Beloved, how does that impact our prayer lives? Do you need the power of God in your life today? 
My guess is you do. Maybe your finances are in a shambles or your marriage is a wreck or your children are rebelling or you're just, you have concerns, you're scared about the future. Perhaps you have a besetting sin that you just, just seems to hang on to and you just, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to be a part of that sin but it just keeps coming back like, you know, just keeps coming back. Or maybe you struggle with doubt. I don't know what, I don't know where it is that you need God's power. But you need God's power. Beloved, understand this. Understand what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that God is able. He has the power to do far more abundantly than we can begin to even ask or even think. Now, of course, I, I do want to be clear. That doesn't mean he's simply going to wave a magic wand and so all, all your problems are going to go away in, in a moment. But he's capable of seeing us through. He's capable of walking us through and helping us and strengthening us through that process, through those moments of darkness in this world. Second, not only do we see that he's able, but we also see that he's actually at work. In the latter half of verse 20, he says, according to the power at work within us. That he is already at work within us. Three previous times in this letter, in the, in the letter of Ephesians, Paul uses this at work, that, that God is at work. And all of them typically dealing with this supernatural work, a work that's done by God in and through us in the spiritual realm. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writes, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to, to the purpose of Him who works all things according to his, the counsel of His will. And in, later in the same chapter, in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in us uh, that He worked rather in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the heavenly places. And then in a negative sense, Paul uses that same word in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this word, world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So God is at work. He is at work in this world. And I'm going to suggest three ways that God is at work in this world. They're going to sound familiar to you. Number one, He's at work through His Word. He's at work through His Word. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, note these words, which is at work in you believers. Beloved, last week I said that, this, that the words on this, in this book, are, they're just words on a sheet of paper, and that, that's what they are, unless they're accompanied by the Spirit of God. But when they're accompanied by the Spirit of God, they work in us. They change us. Don't neglect your time in the Word. Second, God is at work in us through other Christians. Also, First Thessalonians chapter five, verses twelve through thirteen, Paul says, "We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord to admonish you, to esteem them very highly in love because of their." work and so there's this work that happens as we interact with one another that God is doing a work through us 
So he's at work through his word. He's at work through others. And he's at work through prayer. James writes, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you will be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. So God is at work in our prayers. Don't ever think that prayer is something, well, I've tried everything else. Let me, let me pray. Prayer is the first place we go because God is at work in our prayers. Now, uh, just a, a, a final word of caution about that work. Um, it's not always an easy work, even in our own lives. Paul, Paul writes in uh, Colossians chapter 1, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so sometimes that work that God is doing us is going to, it's going to be a blood, sweat, and tears kind of work. But remember this, that God is at work. He is doing his work, bringing us to maturity in Christ. Finally, third, third thing that we see from our confidence in the vertical here is that God will receive his glory. We see that in verse 21. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That word glory or some form of it like glorify appears 470 times in our Bibles. In one sense, the word, the word glory refers to a, a bright light that, sur- that surrounds us as God's presence. Wayne Grudem, a, a systematic theologian, uh, writes in his book, he defines glory as the created brightness that surrounds God's revelation of Himself. The word, it's all over the Bible, this word glory. The sun is said to be the radiance of the glory of God in Hebrews chapter 1. And I believe that's the sense that the word is used here in Ephesians chapter 3, that Paul is ascribing honor to God because God alone is worthy of that honor. That in both in the church and in Christ, there's this picture of unity. Christ and the church married to one another. Christ and the church reflecting the glory of God. You know, if you were to tell me, for example, uh, I think you have, a, you have a, a beautiful marriage. Well, then you would be saying the same thing to my wife, right? Because we're, we're one. Christ and the church in unity reflecting the glory of God. Beloved, do we give God glory? Do we give Him the glory for everything that happens in our lives. You know, it's easy. Let's, let's be honest. It's easy to give God the glory when things are going peachy, right? When everything's wonderful. You know, you got, you got plenty of money. You got plenty of family is in, in harmony, et cetera, et cetera. And all these things, it's easy. Well, praise God for this. But do we give God glory all the time? He deserves our glory all the time. And so when we pray... We should direct our prayer starting vertically to our Heavenly Father. And when we pray, we should pray not only for ourselves, but for others as well. That they be strong, that they have strong, biblically-based convictions. That they love as Christ loved. And that they grow into maturity in Christ. And when we pray, we should pray in confidence, believing that God is able to do far more than than we can ask or imagine. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for this time. 
Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the power of prayer. Lord, help us to be a people that do more than just talk about prayer. But help us to be a praying people. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Help us, Father, to have to be strong in the face of our culture. Help us, Father, to to stand firmly on biblical convictions, that we would understand the Scriptures properly so that we can stand firm on those convictions. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to love well. Not just to love those who love us. That's easy to do. Even the pagan can do that. Help us to love others well, even those who are seemingly unlovable. Lord, help us to love well. And Lord, I pray that you help us as well to grow in maturity in Christ. To grow, to reflect Christ-likeness. That we might be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, our benediction scripture is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11-14. through 14. Paul writes, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Choose to do that or not. It's up to you. Um, all the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you and have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.